All right, if you have, you should have a handout. Does everybody have a handout? It's kind of long, <clears throat> and the way that this was printed, it's off a website, and I can't really control the formatting. So I apologize if it's a little small in print. But uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm teaching a class in the college on Gnosticism, and that is really something that I think is very prevalent today. And a lot of historians believe that Gnosticism didn't start spreading or enter into like any kind of germination process until the second century. But that's because they don't take the Bible, a lot of these historians, they don't take the Bible as a legitimate source of knowledge and information. John wrote almost directly the book of 1 John, not only for believers to understand how to have fellowship, but to combat the teachings of Gnosticism. That's that big word there, the G is silent. It's Gnosticism. The root word is Gnostic, and that means to have knowledge, to attain knowledge. And you're going to see that throughout our study as we go through this article today, which I left off um, five more pages of this. It just really went into a lot of detail, things that I don't think we need to cover. But how many of you have heard of the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Truth, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, all these different Gospels? I'll give you a line from the Gospel of Judas, which these are not canonized texts, and the reason is because it's all Gnostic writing. The idea that Satan wants to take out of people's mind is that Jesus is God. And if you can get that taken out, well, then you can change everything that he offered. In the Gospel of Judas, there's a theory towards the, or excuse me, there's a summary towards the end that whoever this writer was, not inspired by the Holy Spirit. But they said, well, Jesus and Judas went off by themselves. And Jesus told Judas to betray him because if they both suffered a martyr's death, then they'd be able to get into heaven. So that takes away the divinity of Christ. First of all, it it makes him a liar for saying that he's the son of God, the Messiah. And it also makes Judas the hero as somebody who valiantly died with his friend Jesus as they're both just trying to get to heaven. In the Gospel of Philip, I think, or or one of those, I, I believe it's the Gospel of Philip or the Gospel of Thomas, this article quotes as saying that in order for women to get to heaven, they have to deny their womanhood and become males because that's the only way that they can get into heaven. And so androgyny was something that was taught and supported according to the Gospel of Philip or Thomas by Jesus Christ. And that's these things are are crazy ideas, but when you understand what Gnosticism is, you'll see how they get to these conclusions. The Gospel of Mary Magdalene teaches these hyper-realistic illusions about Jesus coming out of the grave. Uh, In the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, there's she contests this information, or she puts forward this information that she saw Jesus come out of the tomb, and there was a 100-foot talking cross that talked with her. You can see that how, you know, these things, they're not just off by a little bit. Oh, they they could have almost been canonized and considered scripture. They're totally off altogether. And when you actually see these counterfeits and you see the cohesion of the Bible that you have, you have to come to the conclusion that God has inspired this book, that this is put together by God for a plan and purpose. This is what he has chosen to reveal before man. But there's a lot out there that poses as good food, but it's poisonous. And so as I'm teaching my class, which is a lot more in-depth than what we do on a Sunday night, and that's why I debated going through this, but I thought it would be appropriate, you have writings like this 
that will try to make you and I believe that, well, John couldn't have written to the Gnostics because they weren't even formed. They were formed. And as soon as you see what these Gnostics ended up fully teaching in the second century, I think you'll be surprised. And you'll see why John says in his gospel that every spirit that says that Jesus is not come in the flesh is not of God. What he means by spirit there is a teacher or any kind of heavenly being as they would pose themselves with higher knowledge, with, with greater teaching. Not one of them conceded that Jesus is God in the flesh. You'll hear a lot today about the Christ spirit, how that at Jesus' baptism, he was, up until that point, he was a regular man born of regular parents through regular reproduction, and he did not become God until that moment at his baptism, and then when he was on the cross, he forfeited the Christ spirit, and then it was put back on him at his resurrection. That takes away his divinity. That takes away, if that is true, that means a regular man died on the cross for our sins who had his own sins to pay for. You see how that's a problem? I've put my trust in the risen Savior, who is God. And that's what the Bible teaches. And when we deviate from that, with the temptation of, you can know more, you can attain, there's more for you to understand that you you don't yet know, that's very dangerous. Because it has to add to the scripture, and it has to change what God says. Do you know why? Because what we have revealed here is complete. You'll go to a lot of churches that teach in extra biblical revelation. People will say, I had a vision from God. I had a dream from God. And he told me this specifically. And they will make it as though God has only told them something that he has not already revealed in his word. I don't have any problem with a person experiencing something in a dream or having a vision. Where my problem comes in is most of the time what they say God told them contradicts what he's already told us. And that's a big red flag. That's a big red flag. If someone is saying, God told me something privately, and you hear what they say, and it goes against the Bible, you can conclude that that was not God speaking to them. We battle spiritual wickedness in high places, folks. It's everywhere. And you'll see, when you understand this, and I think the more you refresh yourself on it, it's in a lot of our movies. A lot of our you know Christian-type movies for a long time. People thought that the Matrix trilogy was just a perfect example of the spiritual life and the perfect, perfect example of how a person gets saved, you know, being born again, the main character going through this process. The Matrix, like many other Christian-type movies, is Gnostic Christianity. And you'll see that as we go through it. How about we just let the Bible say what the Bible says and let Hollywood do what it does? God will judge them both. <laughs> we know what he says about his word. But we got to be careful that we don't get, the, we don't get caught up in this. It, it's, it's like stepping in a bear trap. It's not a good thing. It will permanently damage you if you're not careful. Because if you see these things as truth, or there's a little bit of truth, and, and, and there's a lot of error, so we'll just take the truth, you're opening the door to false teaching. And that's a large reason. It's a very important reason why John wrote what he wrote in 1 John 4 and in 1 John 5 about the testimony of God, the record of God. Because a lot of people were going, going around and teaching that Jesus had separate little meetings with his apostles that talked about this great divine spark and all these different things that happened. But they have it, and they gave it to us, so trust us. But the basic things, they were getting incorrect. And it grew into what we now explore today. Gnosticism is a big word for New Age. That's what we're going to study tonight. 
And we're not just going to read this article. I'm going to take several spots, and I encourage you, grab a pen. This is more of a, I'm really just going to teach the class that I taught on Friday. There'll be sections I ask you to highlight, and then I'll ask you to write off to the side. And I left this uh, one page per, um, or a a blank space on the back of each page so you can write these notes down, because I know there's not a lot of margins on this. But there'll be some places where I ask you to highlight and then write a verse off to the side because I want you to be able to identify when you hear these things in the world and say, the Bible says something different. Because a lot of people that believe in New Age, believe in this Gnostic movement, they use the Bible as their proof text for some things. They can't use it for everything because the Bible would condemn their teaching. But they've picked a few things here and there that have led them to these conclusions and they go out and deceive people. You guys have heard the interview we did with Shelby Mullen on Bible Line. One of the things that she said in the interview, she had said to me before, but there is in the New Age movement, you are trying to attain Christ-likeness. That that's a spirit that you can have, just like the man named Jesus had. And so it sounds good. You could even pray to Jesus, but you're you're not praying correctly. That's not a faith that saves You're trusting in something that is not what the Bible contends is truth. It goes against it. But how do you identify these things? You know the truth. All right, so let's pick up right there in the beginning there. Gnosticism is the belief that human beings contain a piece of God or the highest good or a divine spark within themselves, which was fallen from the immaterial world into the bodies of humans. All physical matter is subject to decay, rotting, and death. These bodies and the material world created in it by an inferior being are therefore evil. So right off the bat, you have God being portrayed as this unseeable, unknowable deity who made a mistake in creation and is therefore has created evil matter. This is docetism, right? Look up here for a moment. Everything that is material or fleshly, and I'm not talking about the flesh nature. I'm talking about things you can see and handle. That's all bad. And there's a spiritual realm that we have to be awakened to, to have this divine spark of knowledge, and then we will be able to find our way back to God. That's what Gnosticism teaches. And you have to be awakened to this. And drugs are used, sexual practices are used to try and free this spirit nature within you that you don't know is there. It's a bunch of junk, folks, but people believe it and they're doing it today. It's happening. All right, highlight this statement here. Trapped in the material world, but ignorant of its status, the pieces of God, or humanity, require knowledge, gnosis, that root word, to inform them of their true status. Take your Bibles and join me in Romans chapter 1, in verses 20 through 23. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. The statement that is proposed by the Gnostics here is that We are trapped in a material world, but we do not know our creator. We do not know this God who created us. Well, the Bible says something different, and you should be able to quote it when when you're challenged by this type of teaching. It says this, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, it says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. This is why the teaching that takes away God as the creator is dangerous. It's not a preference. It is intentional. If you can remove God from the creation process, 
Then you have a created being who is no longer created. They are a byproduct of natural chemical reactions. And there's no accountability to anybody but your own carnal desire. Evolutionary teaching followed to its logical conclusion is if you are stronger than somebody else, there are no moral limitations from you to eliminate them for the preservation of your own sustained life. Because that's how we get to the best form of a society. The weak die and the strong go on. How horrible would it be if all children who were born with special needs were automatically discarded? Folks, it's gotten to the point where almost, I don't want to say all, but a large percent of children that are diagnosed with Down syndrome in the womb, the parents are advised that they should be aborted. I'll never forget this video that I saw a long time ago, it was when I was in college, of a young man with Down syndrome, fully capable, fully aware, standing before a court and testifying that my life matters. I'm just like you. I just look different and sound different, and there's some things that I can and can't do that you can do. My life should not be ended because of the way that I look. But because of this idea of, you know, it would be so bad for them to exist in this way that it's better off if they're just never born from the start. What a tragedy. What a tragedy that people are being informed this way. How do we get to this conclusion? You devalue the human soul. If we're all just a product of Things coming together and exploding, well, then you can take out a life. What does it matter? There'll be some other explosion that will happen and a better life will be created. The Bible doesn't teach that. What does the Bible say? That from the invisible things of him, from the creation of the world, they're clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. You look up in the sky at daytime, at nighttime, and you realize this was not an accident. It's not an accident that we are the perfect distance from the sun. It's not an accident in the way that oxygen works, the way this world receives water, the way that the, the seas never overcome the land totally. They have a tide. There's all sorts of things that it's a design. This is a function. And that's clearly seen so that we who are made can recognize there is a creator. So right off the bat, the Gnostic teaching that you don't even know that you're created is wrong. It is within us. Being understood by the things that are made, even his. So now we've personified this creator. He's a person. He is God. His eternal power and Godhead so that they, the created ones, are without excuse. People will say to me many times, they'll say, Pastor, what about the person that never hears the gospel? Won't they be able to stand before God and have an excuse that they never heard? It's a good question that has an answer right here. And I answer that in twofold. Number one, I use Romans 1.20 that says there's not going to be anybody who, is, um, who has an excuse. Number two, if you are so motivated and concerned about the people who have not heard, I strongly encourage you to tell the people who can hear. Start by reaching the people who can hear. And as you soul win and as you continue to lead people to Christ, if you still feel a burden for those who have not heard, maybe there's a call on your life to be a missionary. I know some people, very few, who have done everything in their power to learn a whole new language and a whole new culture to reach one person for Christ. We need people like that. That's a part of our whole missionary program. 
We're not trying to support people who are going to better communities, although that's a good thing to better communities. I understand that. I want to support people who want to get others under the sounds of the gospel. But there's not going to be anybody who has an excuse before God. 21. Because that, why, why did they reject these things? Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. So they could have glorified him as a creator. They could have glorified him as a power and deity, but they did not glorify him as he is God. There is none beside him. You're going to see what the book of Isaiah says about that a little bit later on. They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. See how dangerous an unthankful attitude is? But became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. Folks, that's, this is directly towards those who teach there's got to be a higher knowledge. They profess themselves to be wise, but they're vain in their imaginations. The only conclusion you get to a divine all spark, all this different stuff, is if you don't believe what God has clearly said and you're looking for something different. And people will, oh, the Gnostics, these are full of wisdom. That's what the word means, gnosis. But they're fools. Because they've twisted what God has already clearly said. In the creation story, we see the testimony and power of God. Professing themselves to be wise, they became as fools. 23, mark this, and changed. They made an active change from the truth to a lie. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. How many of you have seen this in ancient Egyptian mythology, the constant obsession with the merging of a human body and an animal body? Why do you think that is? Because they worship the creation and deny the power of the creator. They cannot deny that the creation is powerful. The creation has design, intent, form, function, purpose. But they will not give the glory to God. Why is that? They have changed his glory. Because man loved their deeds. And they do their deeds in darkness. Jesus says that in John chapter 3. It's a dangerous thing. It can affect every area of a person's life. Go back to your article here and we'll continue to read. Trapped in the material world but ignorant of its status, the pieces of God require knowledge to inform them of their true status. That knowledge must come from the outside from outside the material world. And you should mark this. And the agent who brings it is the Savior or Redeemer. That's Christian language. See, you could go up to a Gnostic and say, I believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And they would say, me too. They would agree, but not on the same terms that you understand. Because you have a biblical understanding. There is something behind that statement. So you can't just say, Jesus is the Savior, and everybody understand what you mean. You've got to explain. That's why Jesus taught. That's why he spent all that time teaching his disciples after the resurrection. He taught them. And then they took the things that they heard and understood and told others freely. During the first three centuries of Christianity, there was no central authority until after the conversion of Roman Emperor Constantine the Great in 312 CE. Christian communities taught many different views, 
In the 2nd century CE, some groups now collectively referred to as Gnostic Christians claimed to have access to secret knowledge about the nature of the universe, the nature of Christ, and they don't mean the person Christ, they mean the Christ-like spirit, and what his appearance on earth meant to believers. In the middle of the 2nd century CE, a group of Christian leaders retroactively referred to as the church fathers, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and others, wrote volumes against these Gnostic Christians. And I'm contending to you that by this time in the 2nd century AD, that they were already fully formed, but they had begun back in the time of Christ. Because John wrote about these very things. The Gnostics, as well as the church fathers, were educated in the various schools of, and you should mark this, it's already marked in your note, philosophy. Boy, the study of how things are. How we reason. Many of the schools shared the theories of Plato and his views of the universe. Now, this I have highlighted for my students in the college class. I asked them to highlight this, and we're going to spend a lot of time looking at some things here. For Plato, who's the leader of this in the second, uh, uh, into the second century and on, God, or the highest good, existed beyond the material universe, was perfect, and so would not have created an imperfect world. So let's see what God said about this world that he created. Join me in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 4. Genesis 1 in verse 4. And God saw the light, that it was good. You should mark that. And God divided the light from the darkness. Verse 10. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was what? Verse 12. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was very, excuse me, that it was good. Verse 18. And to rule over the day and rule over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. 21. And God created whales and every living creature that moveth which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw it was good. 25. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day, into chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He had rested from all his work which God created and made. The very last thing that is said about creation 
as a description of what it is, is it was very good. So the teachings of Plato and Gnosticism contend that because God is so good and so righteous and so holy, there's no way that he would create such a fallen world. Why is the world fallen? Is it because of God messing up? No, it's because of man. And how can we trace man's fall? The devil who is the father of lies. All of them, every single one of them. That's why this creation is in the condition it is. That's why there's going to be, praise God, a new heaven and a new earth. And you think this is beautiful. What's that going to look like? I don't know, but one day I will know. How's that for some gnosis? Can't wait for that, folks. Look in Romans chapter 5 and verses 12 through 14. I know we're hopping around quite a bit, but stay with me. This is, this is good stuff to know. Romans chapter 5 describes to us how sin was brought into the world. And, and this is important to note and understand because the, the, the contested knowledge here is, well, God couldn't have made this world. How many of you have heard this phrase? If God is so loving, why would he allow bad things to happen to good people? Raise your hand if you've heard that. Okay. If God is so loving, then why would he create a world that is full of natural disasters and climate change and death and decay and destruction? God is not the creator of those things. He does, however, command those things and uses it as a judgment against nations. But it's not a part of his original design. What destroyed this design? Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 gives us the answer. Romans 5, 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by what? Sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have what? Sinned. Look at verse 14, or verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Look at verse 17, the first part of verse 17. For if by one's man offense, death reigned by one. One man's decision to sin Pass that on to you and me. We are in the condition we are today, not because God created us with an evil, wicked, sinful nature, but because of sin. Go back to your notes. Plato posited the existence of a secondary power. Listen to how crazy this gets. He posited the existence of a secondary power, the demiurge, who created matter, the substance of the physical realm, most Gnostic systems promoted this view. Gnostic concepts mirror a modern school of philosophy known as existentialism. This is introspecting. You're, you're looking inside yourself and you're asking these questions. How and why do we exist? Gnostics asked and answered such questions as, Who am I? Where did I come from? What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? What is my true self? We could answer each one of those questions biblically. Theology. What's the theology? What's the, the teaching about God in the Gnostic system? Gnostics promoted concepts of radical dualism. Look up here for a moment. Remember we talked about that flesh, 
spirit separation, that's radical dualism. Have you ever seen the yin and yang logo? It's perfect symmetry. One is dark with a white circle. The other is white with a uh, dark circle. And this is, for all good, there is evil. There's a satanic saying with all their imagery. Oh, it's, it's escaped me from the moment, but I think it is, as above, so below. And there's this idea that for every force of good in God, there is a force of evil as well. First John, right off the bat, in the first ten verses says, In God is light and there is no darkness. What do you get when you tell a believer that there is just as much evil as there is good in them? You get a believer who chooses to continually live in their sin. Because they say, if my God is this way, then I am this way. For all the good that is in me, I also can do all the evil that I want, and they will balance themselves out. That's why a believer who claims to have fellowship with God, but lives in sin, is a liar. You don't have fellowship with God. Because in God, there's only light, no darkness at all. Well, that hits the Gnostic right in the mouth, because they teach something differently. How do you come to that conclusion? You twist the word of God. All right, mark this here. This was polarized as the soul or spark against the flesh, light against darkness. Actually, mark this right here. This is what they claim about God. This is what they teach about God. God, who does not create. Interesting. They already contradicted themselves. Originally, emanated archons or powers like the light from the sun seen, but not physical. Look in the Gospel of John in chapter 1. The Gospel of John in chapter 1. The theological teaching in Gnosticism is that God does not create. He's like the, I don't even know how to describe him, but he's just like a gatekeeper, I guess, in Gnostic theology. But what does the Bible say? John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jehovah's Witnesses, in their Bibles, their Watchtower translation, they add one tiny word. They add an A between was and God at the end. Why? Because Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is God. That he is, he is a created being. They reject the Trinity. And because God's word is against them, they have to change what God's word says. You see how easy that is? How hard would it be to look through the entire Bible and, and try to find one small word that was changed? But you change that, you undermine Jesus Christ. You undermine a lot of his teaching, if not all of it. But the Bible says here that Verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by who? Him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Look in verse 14. And the word, logos, the same that was referred to in verses 1 through 3, was made flesh. He got a body. And dwelt among us. Who's us? That's John. Who's writing? This is the disciples, the apostles. And we beheld, look up here. To behold something is to see it. That word actually means look. And you'd say it if you want to get people's attention. Hey, look here. Look over here. You know? 
So when someone says we beheld his glory, they saw it with their eyes, the physical God in the flesh who had a body. 1 John 1 says that which we have touched, we have handled, we have seen, we have heard. It's a real person, not a spirit, not a phantom. Why would John write about this if there wasn't teaching going around that Jesus was just a spirit? He's just a ghost. There's, they're addressing some type of teaching that was going on. But John continues, This word, which was said to be the creator in verse 3, dwelt among us, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him, John the Baptist, bare witness of him, and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now hold on a second. John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. How, pray tell, could you be born six months ahead of somebody, but that person be older than you? We're talking about God, who has no beginning and has no ending. You see how you ruin the teachings of Jesus Christ by adding this garbage and calling it knowledge? Very attractive. Why is it attractive? Because humans have a pride problem. And it's even in churches. It can happen with pastors. It's one of the reasons why, and it's not a popular thing, but I'm, I'm not really privy to go out and spend time with a bunch of pastors together. It's a great opportunity for networking, and most of the times I have an opportunity to do that. There's no events going on. But there's a lot of pastors that walk around like peacocks. And they say, look at my ministry, look at my numbers. Ooh, we have this. Ooh, we have this. What do you have? And I come in there with the gospel, and I try to have a conversation with pastors, and they're offended that I want to talk about the gospel. Really? Why? It's probably not something you're focusing on. Very easy for people to get sucked into greater knowledge, greater teaching. Oh, I'm a, I follow X, Y, and Z. I really like this. I really like that. I like the Bible. Do you like the Bible? Yeah, we like the Bible, but how about this? I like the Bible. Oh, okay, look at this guy. People don't like it because they like to stroke the ego, make things more, more difficult than what they are. If Jesus says we should suffer the little children to understand, we should be plain and simple and clear. And all this stuff is hard. Can you imagine if I go back there to the Iwana kids and go, hey, are you spiritually awake? That's creepy. You go to kids and you start telling them these types of things, they're going to believe you and take you at face value. You know what you should be telling kids? God loves you and this is how he loved you. He sent his son to die for all the bad that you've done. And if you just simply put your faith in it, you just believe on him, he gives you something in return. That's why we don't say ask into your heart. Number one, the Bible doesn't say it, but you tell that to a kid and they're going to go, okay, he needs to be in my physical heart. You want to talk about that? We'll talk about that later. That was how I grew up. All right, look at verse 17. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. He hath made him known. You look at Jesus, you see the face of God. You take that away when you teach that he's something outside. Some sort of weird being like that. Back to your notes. One of these creators, Sophia, or wisdom, isn't it interesting that that's what her name is? Wisdom. 
In a moment of weakness, produced this demiurge who then created a physical universe, including humans. In the philosophical thought, logos was the principle of rationality that connected the highest good to the material world. I want you to look down here, skip down to the bottom there. I think it's page number two, where it says the invention of orthodox heresy. It's a paragraph heading. The church fathers reacted to Gnostic teachings by inventing the twin concepts of orthodox heresy. These concepts did not exist in the ancient world. With the thousands of different native cults in the Mediterranean basin, there was no central authority that determined what people were to believe. Now, that's the opinion of this writer, the person who wrote this. But we know there was a standard or an expectation. Jesus is the Son of God. You believe on him, you receive the free gift of everlasting life, forgiveness of all your sins. And then you go and live in a life that is honorable to him, not to be saved, but because you are saved. They rejected this and came up with a bunch of other stuff. So remember the church fathers we talked about a little earlier? Uh, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, I, I can't remember the other one. But they, they wrote these volumes against Gnostic Christianity. These are the conclusions that they came to about the Gnostics. Look at that numbered list. The Gnostics were condemned by her- as heretics by the church fathers for the following reasons. Number one, the Gnostics promoted a higher God of pure essence and love as being the true God over the creator God. So they would contend that you've got God 1B. They have God 1A. Mark these down because we don't have time to look at them. Isaiah 44, 6. Well, actually, we can go to this one. So go to Isaiah 44, 6. We've, we've got time for this one. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. How can that be true? There's only one. And beside me, there is no God. Look in verse 8. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Take this as a note. What We're right there. Look in 45, chapter 45, verses 5 through 6. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. And there is none else. Pretty straightforward that there is no God 1A and 1B. But the Gnostics teach that there's something different. Go back to your notes. Look at point number two in that list. By the second century, Christianity was a separate religion from Judaism. But Christians retained God, the God of Israel and many teachings of the Jewish scriptures. Why? Because Jesus is the Savior that redeems the world, but he's of Israel. He's the Jewish Messiah. But Gnosticism didn't like that, so they have to change it. Look what they say. Gnostics agreed that the creator God in Genesis created the universe, but creation consisted of evil matter. In some Gnostic systems, the God of Israel was not only evil, but Satan himself. Folks, this is exactly what the Pharisees said. 
when they looked at Jesus doing the miracles, they said he does it in the power of the devil. The message hasn't changed. You know why the devil doesn't change what he's telling the world and deceiving them with? Because it works. People believe it. Why change it if it's still working? They say in baseball, sometimes it's not the best team that wins. It's the hottest team. Whatever they're doing, you're getting base hits and scoring runs. You keep doing that and beating teams, you'll win the World Series. doesn't matter if you're the best team or not. It's like the same thing with Satan. He's, doing, he's been doing this from the very beginning. By the way, what did he say to Eve? You eat of that tree and ye shall know. There was something that she needed to know and understand. And it was the difference between good and evil. You'll be like God. And how interesting is it that Gnosticism says we can all become little gods. He hasn't changed. Gnosticism didn't start in the second century. It started in the garden. And John wrote about it because they were saying it about Jesus. He didn't really have a body. That's why in 1 John 4 it says every spirit that doesn't confess that Jesus has come in the flesh, it's an anti-spirit, it's an anti-Christ. Mark it and avoid it. Thus the commandments of God of Israel were deemed invalid, the Gnostics say. Number three, Gnostics claim that their teachings came directly from Jesus. Oh, okay, because I would say my teachings come directly from Jesus, but what's the difference between Christianity and Gnosticism? Uh, Mark this, please. In those scenes in the Gospels where Jesus takes the disciples aside to better inform them, he also taught secret things that were passed down to them. Shh, 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 secret, secret. You need to write down 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 20 through 21. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 20 through 21, that says, knowing therefore this, that no scripture is of any private interpretation. The things that Jesus taught to his disciples, they went and freely taught as well. He wasn't teaching them about some demi-urge and separate gods and all this stuff. That's why these other gospels of Philip and Thomas and Mary Magdalene and the gospel of truth and the gospel of uh, Judas... That's why they fail the test of Scripture. They deny Jesus' divinity. He wasn't secretly meeting with them saying, I'm a man just like you. we got to get out of this. That's not what he's teaching. Number four. Consisting of physical matter, the human body was evil. Now I want to ask you a question. This is something that I had to ponder when I was studying this. Is the human body and how it's designed inherently evil? No, it's not. What makes the body corrupted? The same thing that corrupts our planet, the entire solar system. That's why the second law of thermodynamics is a law. Things are constantly in decay. They're not getting better, they're getting worse. How's that for an encouraging thought? But anyway, the way that God designed the body, it it was very good. What cursed the body? Sin brought about that sinful nature that destroys this body. They teach that, well, the human body is evil. The way that it was created is evil. Back to your notes here. For most Gnostic systems, Jesus was not incarnated into a human body. Whoa, that should be a red flag right there. He never really came in the flesh. They preach the concept known as docetic or appearance. This is docetism. That he appeared one way, 
but was something totally different. Jesus only appeared in the form of a human body so that he could communicate with humanity. If Christ never had a material body, the central pillars of Christianity, the crucifixion and the resurrection of the dead, were nullified. That is exactly what the devil wants. He wants you to know the name of Jesus, know all the things about him, but he's not God. He didn't really die on the cross. He didn't really pay for anybody's sin. But you can love him. And you can follow his teachings. There used to be a Muslim teaching center right across the road. I went there when I was in college as a part of our missions class to see how other world religions operate. I sat down on the carpet, I listened to what they said, and I asked the imam over there. And I was not rude or disrespectful. I asked, what does your faith teach about Jesus Christ? They said, Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. You'll notice that. They'll use that phrase when they speak of someone that they give extra reverence to, like a prophet. He was a prophet, he was a good man, but he was not the Son of God. That's what they believe about Jesus. You see how it's just one thing that's changed? Because Islam teaches that Allah has no son. So Jesus could not have been his son. That's what they teach, and it's wrong. It's, again, these roots of Gnosticism that just have gone off into different flavors. It didn't start in the second century. It started back in the garden. Uh, Number five. A Gnostic, after being awakened, studied the heavens and learned the means to navigate the various levers, the various layers. Come on, folks. Who can prove that? Nobody. You just make it up and say, I know it's true. How? Trust me. Okay. If a six-year-old pulls up in a vehicle outside the church and offers you a ride home, And you look at them and say, what? And they go, trust me. You going to trust them? They don't have the credentials to show that they can drive accurately. But Gnostic Christianity comes in and changes a few things here and there. And all they say is, trust me. And most of the time, they they get you to take some type of drug or something like that. There was a big thing in the offseason with the NFL about Aaron Rodgers, one of the most successful current quarterbacks, Going on a darkness retreat. Ayahuasca. Oh, that, that, that's not the kind of music he listens to. It's a darkness retreat where you're on psychedelics and you're trying to connect with something higher than yourself. Gnosticism. I've talked, we, you guys know Shelby. She's come from this. She knows what this is all about. She said there are, mini, there are ministries in houses right across the road from us that try to teach this type of Christianity. That yes, the Bible's good, but there's something more you can know. This is why John wrote what he wrote. Uh, Continuing at number five there. In this sense, Gnostics viewed salvation as an individual matter rather than involving the rest of the community. In other words, salvation could not be achieved through the cross, church hierarchy, or rules. Now, I would agree that salvation is not achieved by church hierarchy or rules, but the only way that we are saved is by the shed blood of Jesus that was on that cross at Calvary. You take that out, nobody's saved. There's quite a bit here that I wish we had time to read biblically. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. 
And by the way, just as a side note, this is why I like studying world history. Because I want to see, how has the devil twisted those who have come before me? I hear people say all the time in Reformed theology, you don't know the church fathers. You haven't read the church fathers. I don't need to. I have the Bible. But those guys were elevated to such a status that they spoke in place of God. That's the Catholic system today. The Pope speaks and he can change what God has clearly said. I don't remember the process of what that is, but I think it's only been done like four times or something like that. Where he can literally speak as God and people are supposed to obey it without question. That's a danger. That's a scripture of private interpretation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Skip down to verse 21. For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. It's called the foolishness of preaching because God is describing it how man sees it. For the Jews require a sign, but the Greeks seek after what? Wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. The simplicity of that, it's not enough for the world. Unto the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And unto the Greeks, it's foolishness. You know what that means in a modern understanding? The Greeks look at Jesus dying on the cross as weak and stupid. It's a foolish thing. And they go for this stuff. 25. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Again, God characterizing his works as as man sees them. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen. This is how God has chosen to win people. This is how what he will hold people accountable to. He's chosen what man sees as the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the wise. Uh, uh, to, excuse me, to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things that are despised hath God chosen, yea, and all things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh, not Plato, not Satan himself, no flesh should glory in his presence. Look in 31, or excuse me, uh, 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who God has made unto us wisdom. You want wisdom? Find Jesus. Righteousness. You want righteousness? Find Jesus. And sanctification. You want to be set apart holy for a purpose? Find Jesus. And redemption. You want forgiveness of your sins? You put your trust in Jesus. That according as it is written, He that glorieth, any glory that we have, let him glory in the Lord. Amen? Amen. That's it. I got goosebumps. That's a great statement. You want to have any glory? You want to give thanks to anybody? It's not you. It's God, folks. And praise God for it. This type of teaching with Gnosticism, it strips that all away. You can close your Bibles here. We'll finish these last two points, and then you can read the last section, Gnostic Rituals, on your own. That's homework. Don't worry, I won't ever grade it, unless you get in my class. (laughs) Once one successfully, this is what they teach, uh, once one successfully made it through the upper atmosphere, one spark, now home, united with the Godhead, in some systems, one became God. 
In Gnostic systems, there is a denial of what was becoming standard Christian teaching, eschatology, or future return of Christ to usher in the kingdom of God. For Gnostics, the kingdom is within the individual. And I'm going to say that, I know we're over time, but I'm going to say this. You go and listen to most modern Christian music today, and that last line that I just read, the kingdom is within the individual, is what is in their stanzas. They, they eliminate this idea of Christ coming back bodily. That the kingdom is already within us. The Bible doesn't teach that. We'll be in the kingdom, but I am not the kingdom myself. You strip that away, you run into problems. Right off to the side there, as a Bible reference to combat that, Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Whew. That, I love, I, I teach twice a week, and I teach one hour in each class, and I probably put in two and a half, three hours for each class. I'm not kidding. I find stuff like this, and I can't wait to show my students. Not because I'm like, ooh, look at this fun stuff, wow, because I get to go through the Bible and teach the truth. That article, I don't care if I ever see it again, but I want to know what this book says. So that when stuff like this is sent to me, I can help people see. Now I know that's what they say, but here's what the Bible says, and then it's just a logical conclusion. Who's right? Gnostic teachers or God? And if you say Gnostic teachers, I want to ask you again, who's right? (laughs) Seriously. But people don't even realize that they're calling God a liar. And as a teacher, I have the wonderful opportunity to help people come to a better understanding of the truth. I pray that this has been an encouragement to you. I've got that article. If you're interested in it, let me know. I'll send you the whole thing where it goes through those different quotes that I mentioned to you out of those different gospels. That just It's, it's against what the scripture already clearly teaches. And isn't it good to know that God preserves his word? That there's no book in here that contradicts another? Uh, Praise God for his word. It'll never pass away. This hand represents you and me, and my wallet represents sin. I put this on top of my hand because the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This hand represents Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth, as the scripture says. We are loved by God, but our sin separates us from him. There is a payment for this sin. It is separation from him forever in a place called hell. There's no amount of good works that could ever save us. That's why Jesus died on the cross. He took that sin that we could never pay, and he paid it fully. He cried out, it is finished. And in his real body, after he shed his real blood, he died. And he came back from the dead for real. And he says, all of those who simply believe on him, you can be justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. How do I get to heaven? How do I know that when I die, I'll be with God? You put your trust in his son. That what he did on the cross paid for all your sins. The moment that you believe on him, you receive as a free gift everlasting life. Pastor, it's that simple? Yes. And if you think it's more complicated, let me introduce you to the Greek way of thinking. They call this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. They call that foolishness. It's weak stupidity in the eyes of the Greek. Careful. Careful, the things you're not believing are calling God weak and stupid. Understand, 
and attain this knowledge that is available right now freely. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you're here tonight and you've put your trust in Jesus Christ this evening, it it makes sense to you. You were trusting in some other works-based way to get to heaven, but you see now the sufficiency of Christ and you've put your trust in him today for the first time. Would you let me know and just slip your hand up? Raising your hand doesn't save you. It just lets me know that you've trusted on Christ today and you know you're going to heaven and would like prayer, and I will certainly pray for you. Anyone before we close? Heads are bowed and eyes are still closed. I know these things, you may hear them and go, what? How could somebody believe this? Folks, I want you to remember, remember there is a real adversary out there, and he is trying to deceive people. And unless you're on your P's and Q's and you know the word, he's going to try and deceive you as well. Learn the word and then do what it says. And lastly, be a thankful person. Be thankful to God for what has been given to us in the gospel message and in his son, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, bring us back here safely for more study on Wednesday night. We pray, Lord, for the kids in the back. What a blessing it is for those leaders to be able to sit and talk with those little minds. We just pray, Lord, that as they learn scripture, it can be rooted into their minds and they can know and understand this great truth in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.